Well, if you're visiting with us, we are in the midst of a sermon series of relationships. But here's the deal. If you've been here the last three weeks, this is week number four, I think, in this series, you're going to hear some of the same stuff repeated. And you're going to be sitting there going, when is he going to move on? Sorry, got to build the foundation. You know what I'm saying? Solid foundation must be established. So if you're looking for that sermon where it's like, okay, give me all those steps. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. We'll eventually get there. Right now, it's, it's all about uh, building the foundation. And, and I guess I want to start with this. I don't know if you knew, ever heard this story before. But in Montana, there's this high school that in the same community, there's, there's a couple high schools. And they share the same high school football field. So they take turns, obviously, using it as their home field. So it's, it's being used every Friday night. So if one school's there, the other school's off on their visiting, and then vice versa, right? Well, these two teams are in the same conference, so they do play each other. They are somewhat rivals, obviously. So they're both playing on their home field, but they've got to determine who the home team's going to be. So they alternate every year as to who's the home and who's the visitor. Well, on this particular night... Um, unfortunately, the PA system was not working properly. It's important that you hear this part, okay? PA system not working. So the game is being played, and partway through the game, there's a lull in the game. And so the announcer comes on to the PA and says, at this time, we really want to take a moment of silence. As you've all heard, one of our former band directors had passed away, and they shared who it was, and obviously people were sad uh, with his passing, and so we like to observe uh, with a time of silence, a moment of silence. So here's this moment of silence. Now remember, the PA system isn't working. The visiting team, the team that's deemed as the visitors, they're sitting over there. And as there's a law in the football game, you all know what happens when there's a law in the football game. Strike up the band, right? Let's play some music. Because it's, you know, we got to get the, the, the crowd pumped. One side of the stadium is going to observe a moment of silence. The other side of the stadium is like, hey, let's get the band going. So they struck up a song. You want to know, you want to know what tune they played? Another one bites the dust. That's all moment of silence. Dun, dun, dun. Another one bites the dust. Like, really? Can you imagine the conflict that arose from that? True story. Yep. Uh, they, they have uh, still a few years of trying to work that one out, I think. But here's the thing. Conflict comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? And it is created, though, from different things. There are what I would call conflict creators. Now, I just gave you one, and I'll I'll throw the others up on the screen here. There's that uh, inevitable misunderstanding, which I just gave you an example of. Oops. Um, Something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Now we have some conflict, right? This happens all the time. This is probably the greatest reason for conflicts that I have with people or people have with me is miscommunication or these misunderstandings. That's why I'm I'm sort of big on if it's something really, really important, don't email, don't don't cover it in a text message because probably something's going to happen in the loss of translation along the line and it's going to get worse. Talk it out face-to-face, give a phone call, right? There's misunderstandings of what was said and what's going to get done, and, and oops, now we have conflict. It's a creator, right? Number two, unrealistic expectation. We all know this one. You're expecting an afternoon of peace and quiet. 
I'm going to kick back in my easy boy and relax. Next thing you know, somebody plans something out for you and there's a schedule. Everybody's over at your house or you've got to go to somewhere else. All of a sudden, you're like, this isn't what I planned, right? Uh, my expectations have just been crushed, right? Or you come home from work, or you come home from somewhere, vacation, or wherever it was. You expect a house to look nice and clean, and it's not. There's dishes everywhere, and it's a mess. Ooh, okay. Or maybe you're expecting your husband to be perfect, or men, you expect your wife to be flawless. You're looking at the magazine cover and you're looking at your wife, and she's like, Why? You know, and, and you're like, She's not flawless. Trust me, guys, she's sitting there saying, He's not perfect. So, unmet expectations, right? We have these un- or so unrealistic expectations, I should say. Maybe you uh, expect a job that pays a lot of money and no stress. And after two weeks, you find out they don't pay much money and you've got a lot of stress, right? Unrealistic expectations. Here's the third thing on the list, diversity. We have all kinds of diversity, don't we? And I'm not just talking male, female, or different colors of skin or ethnic background. We're talking maybe age, likes, dislikes. You, you get married to somebody and they're like, I love Christmas. I hate Christmas. What, how did we end up together, right? Um, you have situations where you hang out with people. They like certain foods. You, foods, you don't like those foods. Oh, I love fish. So we're not going to Red Lobster. Why? Because I hate fish. Oh, right? Something so simple, so small, a little bit of diversity in there, right? Or the fourth one, which is probably the biggest one, which is the one we've been talking about, we started last week, is selfishness. Selfishness. Uh, we discovered this last week. This is probably the non, number one conflict creator. And again, let me, let me restate this or say this again. These are conflict creators. They are not conflict within themselves. These things create conflict. It's how we react, how we respond to these things that cause conflict at times, right? The conflict wears us down, doesn't it? After so many arguments, after so much of these unmet expectations or unrealistic expectations or the diversity, eventually you get to the point where you're like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And you start walking out or you walk out of the room and eventually it's no longer walking out of the room, it's walking out of the house or now they're just walking off work, it's walking out of that job that you had. Let's remember this. Out of all the conflict that we face, You know where all that conflict first began? It began between us and God. A holy God and an unholy people. But praise God that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile our relationship, to fix it, to mend it. We just sang in that second song at the cross where Jesus reconciled our relationship. I'll put on the screen a verse. If you want to write it down, you can look it up later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, it says this, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God reconciled our relationship. We are now his ambassadors helping others 
in their relationships with God and each other. But it begins with that reconciling relationship with us and God. Let's solve that first conflict. Turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Would you, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. James chapter 4. You're going to have to head all the way to the back of the New Testament. James chapter 4. This book is written by James, the brother of Jesus. It's actually the first book written in the New Testament. And James helps us understand why conflict takes place in relationships. And in James 4, he asks a question. He helps uh, give us the cause and the consequences and then the cure for what he is bringing up in this question. And we talked about this passage last week. We spent a lot of time, so I'm I'm briefly going to cover it, uh, part of it again, and then we'll go on from there. Let's look together, James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's read. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous for what others have, and you can't possess it, so you fight and you quarrel to take it away from them. And yet the reason you don't have them, what you want, is because you don't ask God for it. I'll stop there. James tells us the cause for the conflict. It's the evil desires. It's the passions within us. It's our consuming passion for self-gratification. Hedonism is what it's called in biblical times. The Greeks understood it as pleasure. It's an addictive self-love. It's a me-first attitude. So this selfish pride, this, this craving, this thinking about sexual pleasure is to be achieved at all costs. And we think what? This will make us happy. So we have this pulsating desire within us to have something, and it gets blocked, and now we've got conflict. You can't get what you want, so you what? You get mad. You get angry. You don't have the things you want, so you you try to get it from something else other than God, James says. And we discover that that conflict that we have is actually not the conflict of the things around us. It's the conflict within Those four things that we talked about, the conflict creators, those are things that are going on around us, right? But where does the conflict really come from? It comes from within. It's not getting what you want because you have a false understanding about what it is that you should really want in your purpose of life. This cause, this internal fighting, leads to conflict, leads to arguments, even escalating to violence. So what do we do? Look at these verses. It says we want, we covet, we lust, we crave. These cravings are like idols, causing us not to want to give an inch. And here's the thing. These things don't happen in isolation. See, we live within a world system that has infiltrated our minds and our hearts and tells us this is what you want. This is the way you should live. The world tells us what? You deserve what? You deserve a break today. Nobody's going to finish that line. Did I, finish? Did I not say that one right? How about have it your way? Remember that one? Used to be Burger King's favorite one, right? Maybe if you've heard it often, people say, oh, you're so worth it, right? Oh, you're worth it. Go for it. So we live in a culture of entitlement where we supposedly should be getting everything we want because we're feeling gypped or left out. So we should all get a trophy. We should all get a prize. We should all win. 
Nobody should be left behind. Nobody should feel worthless. I get that. We even did that with vacation Bible school, didn't we? Every kid's going to get a prize. And that's awesome. I'm okay with that. But the reality of things out in the world is what? Not everybody wins. Not everybody gets a prize. Not everybody gets a raise. Not everybody has a happy ending. Life isn't fair. We see that in Scripture. We know that to be true. But the world right now is saying, oh, but life should be fair. You should get what you want. You should have it your way. And if the world keeps infiltrating our minds and hearts, it keeps telling us that over and over, we soon begin to believe that. And because we crave and we lust and we desire for the things that we don't have, but we've been told we do deserve those things, guess what happens? There's going to be conflict. James says that apart from God is the wrong strategy. Trying to fulfill this this desire, these, these longings in our heart, apart from God, never works out. Or he says we go to God, but we go to God with the wrong intentions. We try to use God to fulfill our desires. We're, we're not concerned about his glory or his gain or his purpose, but for our happiness. God is not a genie. It's not like we rub the Bible and hope that God answers our prayers. He's not like a vending machine where you push the buttons and you hope he drops things into your lap. That's not God. If that's what your vision of God is, and you are the center of the world, and he's there for you. And that's not the way it is. God is the center. Not us. There's so many false teachings today about how God blesses us with riches and cars and men and women and happiness. And this Jesus can make you rich theology is false teaching. You are not the center of the world. I am not the center of the world. We are God's people, and he wants to have a relationship with us. And we possess the victorious spirit of Jesus Christ. We live in this fallen world with temptation around us and these false teachings, so we must gear up in God's word to find out, well, what do we do? What do we do, right? Look what James says in verse 4. This is sort of an ouch statement right here. He starts off saying this, you adulterers. What? Yeah, you adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Jesus calls us adulterers. We've cheated on God is what James is saying. We've worshipped other things. We have followed other things. And James says, he says, you are cheating on God right now because you're friends with the world. And in doing so and becoming friends with the world, unintentionally, we make ourselves what? Enemies of God. We all know that being an enemy of God is not a good place to be, right? Do you ever look, read through the Bible and see what God does with his enemies? Read through Old Testament. You'll see some of that, right? Even as a child of God and his spirit living in us, we still flirt with the ways of the world, whether we admit it or not. We buy into the lies. We betray the, uh, the trust of God. And we go against God's direction. And what are those lies? The ones that are fulfilled or completed from pleasure? 
Well, we all want to feel better, right? And we all want money. We all want possessions. We, we look at pictures and we want to have this. We want to feel this. We want to become this. If you go back to the book of Genesis with when Adam and Eve were first being tempted, it comes back all the way from Genesis throughout Scripture through today that there's like really three major things that we struggle with. And it's the same thing that three, uh, the three most things that couples argue about are the same things I just put up on the screen. Here's, here's what it is. The lies that we, we try to fulfill here is this. We have to have something. We have to feel something. We have to become something. It's about our possessions. It's about pleasure. It's about power. And apart from God, we try to seek after these things because we want to have stuff. We go shop and shop and shop until we drop. And, and because it's like, well, I feel better when I'm buying stuff. I feel better when I have stuff. I feel better about when I have more money. So maybe we take on more and more jobs and try to have more and more income because we want to have. Or we collect certain things over and over. Why? Because we want to have it. What are you going to do with all the stuff you collected? I don't know, but I have it, right? Or the pleasure. The feel. What, what do couples argue about? Top three things. Money, which is what? To have. Sex, which is to feel the pleasure. And to be, they argue about family, kids, in-laws. And their line in that order. Well, your in-laws are more important than me. You married me, didn't you? Three things that couples argue with are the three things that we struggle with. We lose focus of trusting God to supply our needs, of our feelings, of our identity. And we believe that these things can be obtained by our power. Instead of trusting God to give us what we need, what we need to have. To help us feel joy instead of pleasure. To help us become in Christ victorious instead of to become whatever powerful person I can be. So James is saying disobeying God is like breaking a marriage vow. It's not like an argument between you and your boss or you and your coach or somebody like that. It's more intimate because God loves us as a bride. And in chasing after all those other things, we commit spiritual adultery. And God yearns for us in his spirit, it says in James. So just as a good husband would go after his wife, if I saw my wife flirting with a guy and they're going to walk off together and go buy a hot dog or something together, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go chasing after her. Why? Because she's my bride. And God does the same thing with us. We are his spiritual bride. So he chases after us. Sometimes he steps back and says, I'm going to let you face the consequences of your decision and it's going to hurt. Another time he steps in and says, you done hurting? Let me heal. Let me help you. And there's other times he chases after us and pursues us in such a way that he doesn't want us to even face those consequences. But the amazing thing is that God never shuts us up or out. He loves us immensely. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And like I said, by now some of you are wondering, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We were talking about some of this last week and the week before and the week before, right? Where's that sermon on seven steps to a healthy marriage? Where's that sermon on, on five steps to making your kids listen to you, right? Where's that sermon on ten steps to uh, making your relationship a success? We're waiting for that, Pastor Rex. Where's it at? Let me say this again. Four weeks into this now, and you might hear it again in a couple weeks, but 
you can't have, I can't have a great relationship with other people until my relationship with God is solid. I need to have that genuine relationship with the God of this universe where I'm loving him so that I can love others. And that's why we're working on this foundation with our relationship with God over and over again. So what do we do? We need to learn to deepen our relationship with God. And we, we, I know we, like I said, we touch this over and over. But I want to make sure you understand from God's word what we need to be doing. So let's look at verse 7. And there's going to be four things that are going to be pointed out in this verse. Let's start at verse 7. We'll read through verse 10. James chapter 4. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw close to God and God will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you hypocrites. Let there be tears for the wrong things you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Here's the first thing I put up on the screen for you. That's to humble ourselves. When we humble ourselves, there's what's happening. We're putting ourselves under God. We are yielding to God. We are given into God. We're falling in line or falling in rank with him. If God is the ranking commander general, we are falling underneath him, waiting for his orders, not giving God orders, but waiting his instructions and his orders. We admit his way is best and it's voluntary. It's obeying and the known will of God from the scripture. So we get into God's word and we say, God, what is it that you want me to do? I'm submitting to you today. And it begins there. And then the second thing is this. Resist the devil. Get tough with Satan. Take a stand. Listen, you can't play around with Satan. He is a seducer and a liar. He is nothing to be messed with. You have to get tough with him. And I know some people say, well, fight and get tough with Satan. That's not very Christian-like. We're very gentle. Listen, we're gentle with one another. But we've got to get mean with Satan. Because he is meaner. John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, but I've come to give life and give it abundantly. Did you hear what Satan wants to do to you? Steal, kill, destroy. He doesn't want to mess with you and make you cry. He wants to obliterate you. He will have no choice but to flee when we fight. Did you see what James says? Resist the devil and he will what? Put up a fight? He may. But James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He is your enemy. Not your spouse, not your children, not the one who holds a sign of protest that you disagree with. That's not your enemy. We joke about it. Some of the couples in this church, we went to a marriage retreat together a long time ago. And at the marriage retreat, they had us look at our spouse and do what? You're not my enemy. We had to do that over and over at that conference. And we joked about it, but really, how real is that? How good is that? Because sometimes we look at each other and we think we're the enemy of it. We're not. You are not my enemy. My spouse is not my enemy. Satan is my enemy. So what do you do? You cut the supply lines off, right? You want to be victorious in battle? Well, the other battle, take away some of their weapons. Quit feeding into their victory. Cut the supply lines off. What is it that you struggle with, that you're tempted with? You need to cut the supply line off so that you aren't so tempted with it and battle with it so much. 
I would encourage you, get into Ephesians chapter 6. You might want to write that down. Learn what it means to put on the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6. Here's, here's another thing. My, I, I, my brother used to do this. He said, Rex, every morning I get up and I read Ephesians 6. I was like, why are you doing that? He goes, because I know I'm going to be in battle today. So I have to put on the full armor of God. There's a very simple thing we can all do, right? Here's another thing I would encourage you with. Maybe if, if, if you struggle with things on media, do a media fast. If you, if you struggle with comparing yourselves to others or jealousy or always being in conflict with, with well, look what that person's doing. Do a media fast. Take a week and just unplug from the media. Whatever social media is out there that you're on, or the internet, your phone, just unplug from it. Can you imagine what a week would be like if you didn't do that, if, if you're on it all the time? The hours you gain back in your day, the freedom you gain back, your spiritual intensity sort of heightens because now you're sort of more aware of what's going on around you instead of what's going on with other people. And, and here's the thing, just to give, let you know how I work with Facebook, I'm not on there a lot. If I get a notification, I turn those off, by the way. So if I happen to see Facebook, I'll pop on, oh, I wonder if I got a notification. Oh, oh somebody contacted me. That's how, I, that's how I do it. Why? Because I know something like Facebook, something so simple, can be very damaging and hurtful and just take me in the wrong direction. So I've, I've, I've started to do something new, and that is, because I used to be like, oh, yeah, be my friend, be my friend, be my friend. You know, friend requests, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, high school buddies, I think I remember them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know what? My, my Facebook is full now of a lot of stuff, and there's, now what I do is like, ooh, if somebody uses a word that I'm not really wanting to see or a picture I don't want to see or something sharing this, like I know it could be tempting to me or challenging to me, guess what? I, I Either I unfollow them or I hide the post. Why? Because I don't want to see it. No offense to them. I will be your friend, but I might not be your friend on social media. I want to, I want to get to know you first. And I will use then social media then to broadcast what's going on maybe with FCA, with the church. Oh, here's an awesome verse. I decided that's going to be my route with social media. Why? Because I know the enemy can attack me through something as simple as social media. Again, that's just one small example. But for me, if I want to resist the devil, i got to get mean. And you do too. Here's the third thing. Draw near, come close to God. Return to God. Here's the thing. God loves you. He cares about you, right? We know this to be true. And when you draw near to God, he draws near to you. It's the story of the prodigal son, the young man who got crazy and lived a, a ridiculous life, spending his money on everything until he ran out of everything. And he had to humbly come back to his father. And the father, culturally in that time, did not do what he did. But in this story, this is what he did. He ran to his son. He gave him a robe. He gave him a ring. He killed the fattened calf. And they feasted. Culturally, you didn't do that. But in this story, they did. Why? Because Jesus wanted to communicate to us the grace of God. He wanted to show us that when we draw near to God, God draws near to us. And God's grace is like that. If you've fallen into a 15-foot hole of sin, God extends a 20-foot ladder to you. That's the way his grace works. He's an amazing God. The fourth thing on there was to purify yourselves, to be sorrowful. What does this mean? This is getting right with God. First, there's this time of private confession. Confess your sins. Admit you're wrong. James actually tells us in verse 9 to be, to be afflicted. He says to be wretched. 
to feel the pain of what we've done. And this affliction leads to confession. When we sin, we must confess to God and get it right with him. Let's look at verse 10 of James. James chapter 4 verse 10 then says this. When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him, he will lift you up and he will give you honor. Humble yourselves. Now this is going to be a different Greek word than it's used from verse 1. Asking for forgiveness is a pretty humbling thing, isn't it? When you need to go to somebody and tell them you're sorry, you've messed up. Because that's what we do when we go to God and we we admit that we were wrong. We confess to him what we've done. That's a very humbling thing. And this is what God is saying. He says, seek forgiveness. Be humble, right? And what does James say is going to happen next? He will lift you up. When you bow down and seek that forgiveness, he forgives and he lifts you back up. Now, when spring rolls around, I'm usually at a baseball field. I'm not at a track. Some of you are at tracks. If you've got a a child or a grandchild who runs track, you're at the track. I'm at the ball field. So I really don't watch sprinter sprint, hurdlers hurl, and throwers throw. Okay, I don't. Now, when Olympics come around, I do. And I'm amazed at the sprinters and the hurdlers and the throwers and all that goes on in track. But here's something I've learned about sprinting and hurdling. If you are sprinting, you got one job. You are going from point A to point B as fast as you can. If you are a hurdler, you're going from point A to point B. But here's the problem. There's these little things that get in your way that you have to jump over and continue to hurdle. You know what I'm talking about? There's a reason why the stumps don't hurdle. First of all, we're injury prone. Okay. Second of all, not much vertical. Okay. It takes a lot of skill for what those hurdlers do. And they have to pace out. And they know how many steps in between every hurdle. And boom, boom. And they know. It's an amazing thing to watch. And here's the thing. In our lives as Christians, as we are running the race for God, I've learned this. There's hurdles that pop up in my life all the time. There is sin that comes in front of me. And I stumble. And I try to hurdle over them. But there's times like a good stump does, I don't get high enough and I trip over that temptation. I trip over that sin. You know what the amazing thing about God is? He's right there beside me and says, you didn't quite get over that one, did you? I can help you. And I have to humbly admit that I messed up. And I know this to be true about God. He always picks me back up. He always forgives. The hurdles, these sins in lives are always there for us, aren't they? As a Christian, I'm saying this again, we've got to get this relationship with God right so that our relationship with each other can be better. The conflict that we have with one another, remember all those conflict creators? Okay, The biggest one is we realize it's all coming from within. So if you don't have things right with God within, it's hard to get things right with people. Matthew chapter 22. Verses 36 to 40. Many of you know this verse because we say it every week in four short words. Love God, love others, right? They asked Jesus, they said, Teacher, what's the most important commandment of the law? 
Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. So Jesus is saying life boils down to these commands here. Love God, love others. But here's the thing. If you can't and I can't love God, we will not love others. So we recognize that as we talked about last week. Yes, last week we talked about surrendering and I'm bringing it up again. Why? I want to make doubly sure that you understand this, that I understand this. Because if you're like, okay, I've heard it four times now, two times in the last couple of weeks. So my question to you, so you can repeat it, right? Yes, good. Job done. You can now take God's word and you can go share what we've been sharing here with others. Because here's the problem. There's a lot of conflict going out there. There's a lot of people dying and going to hell. And you have the good news, church. You have the good news. You recognize and understand that there's a God who loves you. Recognize that, right? Understand that. And we've got sin that separates us, so we admit it. We confess it. And God's plan is for us to live in love with him and others. It's a powerful command to love others amidst all the conflict, right? And it's like, I can just try harder. I can just try harder, right? Can't we just get along with what we think? We know the commands of God, but living them out are so hard, aren't they? That's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Jesus Christ loved you. You see, I can't forgive you and love you without Jesus Christ loving me and forgiving me first so that he shows me and his spirit lives within me so that I can do that. When we confess our sins, God embraces us with his grace and love, extends us his spirit so that we can now in turn love others. When we pick this series back up, that's what we're going to focus on, that loving others part and dealing with conflict in the future sermon series here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I don't know if um, you heard the news this morning. There was some breaking news that took place probably, I'm not sure, somewhere around 9 or so, maybe before that. I caught wind of it right when I was uh, pulling in. If you've heard the story about the, the 12, uh, the soccer team, the 12 boys and the one coach in Thailand, um, if, you, if you've not heard anything, uh, basically they're in this cave in Thailand, three miles from the entrance, and it's flooded and they've sent Navy SEALs in, and this, this is almost, it's almost been a month, uh, not quite. Um, but they've taken, Navy SEALs had to go in through this cave underwater for out, periods of hours at times to get to these boys. They're trapped. They've been trapped for weeks. Where it is, they could be trapped for four months, is what they initially said a few weeks ago. It might be four months till we get these boys out. And I'm thinking, as a parent, if my child was trapped in a dark cave. No food, no water. I don't know what I I don't know what I'd be thinking. Well, these parents had some hope in a sense that now these navy seals were getting to them. And they got them food and they they've got some air in there and they're just trying to figure out how do we get them out because these kids can't swim and you're underwater for hours and they've never learned to scuba dive before, so how are they going to do this? And there's a lot of work that's gone into the rescue efforts. This morning they said uh, the rescue, they, they started the rescue uh, operations again. And this morning they reported that they were able to get uh, four boys out. Now, 
This is the news. So you might get home and it might be two, it might be three, it might be 12, I don't know. But the initial report is that they've gotten four boys out. They didn't talk about the conditions of the boys. They said they've, they've rescued four boys so far. And I thought that was a praise, isn't it? We need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for these boys. We need to be praying for that coach. As, as condemning as we can be and say, Coach, why would you do this? Can you imagine how that coach feels? We need to be praying for those Navy SEALs, for anybody that's there in the rescue efforts, to, that, that they're able to be successful. Praying for the parents, for peace for them. Isn't it a moment of desperation that you sort of feel in all this? Understand this. Look at that cave like us on this earth. Look at the outside of the cave as being heaven. Those Navy SEALs being Jesus Christ. We are trapped in this earth. In a dark earth full of sin. And God in his great love says, I'm going to rescue. You can't rescue yourself. There's no way out. So like those Navy SEALs, God sends Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us, to reconcile that relationship between us and God. And the good news is is that once we are saved, we are able to have a great reunion with one another, aren't we? Sunday morning should be like a reunion when we get together as Christians, brothers and sisters, a celebration that we are victorious in Christ, that God is good, that God is full of grace and love. And I imagine, I hope that when all those kids get out, It'll be an incredible reunion with their family. And it'll be an incredible moment of hope. We pray for that rescue, right? We need that rescue in our lives too. That's what God did in sending his son Jesus to save you and I. If you've made that decision, you've asked for forgiveness, and you are saved, you've been rescued. So you know what our job is now? To cheer one another on. To love one another. To help one another. To pray for one another. Let's do that. Let's not be selfish and create more conflict. Not about us, is it? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. Thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us that we can come and worship you. And God, I think right now those boys in this cave and the rescue efforts and the workers... The families, the anxiety, the frustration, the emotions of what's being, what's going on right now. God, we pray for your hand to be upon those in the rescue efforts, to protect them as they go in and as they come out, to keep watch over those children and that coach as they wait to be rescued. And as they're underwater for hours, protect them, Lord. As they come out, help them, Lord. Lord, for us, who maybe we feel like we've been trapped, free us, Lord, from sin. Rescue us. We thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. God, we got to humbly admit that we are in a bad place. We need to admit that we need that rescuing. We can't rescue ourselves. 
God, I thank you again for a time where we can come and look at your word and find truth and hope. Because there is hope. You've got a purpose and a plan to love us and for us to love one another. What a great thing. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. Lord, may we humbly bow before you, admit where we're at, get things right with you, God, and help us then to have an incredible relationship with others. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.